Australia in the World is a podcast produced with the support of the Australian Institute of International Affairs. The AAA wants Australians to know, understand and engage more in international affairs. All views expressed are solely those of the speakers themselves. Hello and welcome back to the Australia in the World podcast. My name is Darren Lim from the School of Politics and International Relations at the Australian National University. Here, as always, with Alan Gingell, National President of the Australian Institute of International Affairs. We have another terrific guest on the podcast today, Thursday the 16th of July. So let me pass things over to Alan to offer his welcome. Thanks, Darren. All our guests on the podcast so far have come from the ranks of the practitioners. Most recently, of course, we had DFAT Secretary Francis Adamson. But there are plenty of other actors in the mix influencing Australian foreign policy. You've got business people, academics, advocacy groups, and the media, broadly understood, are central. That's not just true at the institutional level, but at the level of individuals as well. There's a long history of great Australian journalists interacting with and influencing the highest levels of policymaking. And you can look back to legendary figures from the early days of Australian foreign policy, like Dennis Warner or Peter Hastings or Bruce Grant, through to much more recent figures like Mary Louise O'Callaghan, Graham Dobell and Rowan Callick. Darren and I have discussed media coverage of international affairs several times on the podcast, especially in relation to China. At times we both expressed frustration at some of the reporting and commentary. So we thought it was only fair to invite a representative of the fourth state to defend the profession, or at least to help us understand how the media operates covering Australia in the world in the year 2020. So it's my great pleasure to welcome Stephen Jedgetts to the podcast today. Stephen will be known to many of our listeners. He covers foreign affairs in the Asia-Pacific region for Australia's national broadcaster, the ABC, and is based at Parliament House in Canberra and often be seen on television looking freezing outside in overcoats. He speaks to camera. He's spent more than a decade at the ABC, including five years covering federal politics, and he also spent two years working for the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade at the Australian High Commission in New Delhi. Most importantly for our conversation today, Stephen has reported on many, if not most, of the biggest stories on Australian foreign policy in recent months as we've grappled with the COVID-19 pandemic and experienced new levels of turbulence in the China relationship. So welcome to the podcast, Stephen. Thanks for having me. It's a, it's a real pleasure to join you both. Let's just begin with your own story. Tell us how you got into journalism and how it connects to your interest in foreign affairs. Look, I mean, the story of my career is probably a pretty typical one. Like many journalists, I was driven by a pretty, I guess, insatiable sense of curiosity and also just the, the joy I, I genuinely got from delving into big ideas, I guess. I always like to write, always love to talk, like most journalists. Uh, just the sheer act of communication has, has been a joy. So that probably pointed me towards journalism, if you like. I guess the other thing to say is that probably moral vanity must have played a part in it as well. I'd watched too many movies involving crusading journalists shining a light on hidden depths. And I also had a desire, like many journalists, to be close to the to the centre of the action, if you like, where decisions were being made. So I guess that probably explains why I veered pretty quickly into federal politics or the coverage of federal politics and spent quite a bit of time covering the day-to-day drama that you get up here at Parliament House. As for international affairs, well... I guess I was always interested in foreign affairs, but my interest really developed quite a bit more when my partner at the time, now my wife, was posted to New Delhi with DFAT. I basically went along for the ride and spent a couple of years, as you mentioned, working as a locally engaged staff member for the High Commission in Delhi. DFAT, of course, wasn't and isn't a perfect organisation by any stretch of the imagination, but I really did enjoy my time working with DFAT. And I was also pretty quickly entranced and fascinated by the world of diplomacy and foreign affairs, which I was drawn into. Yes, the the work can obviously be slow, it can be painstaking and difficult. But watching those sort of fine trade-offs that diplomats and foreign policy professionals have to make every day, and the way that human interaction can, can shape events through foreign policy was just fascinating to me. But that also meant that I started to read much more intensively about foreign policy. 
So when I came back from India, when we returned to Australia, I found myself just as a political journalist reporting much more about foreign affairs and then formally taking on a role with the ABC, looking specifically at first the Pacific, which I, I covered for a, a brief period of time, and then more broadly to foreign policy and Australian foreign policy in particular in the Asia Pacific. So that's my history, Alan and Darren. What it probably does show you, I I hope, apart from anything else, is that I am still a neophyte in many ways. I've only really been looking into foreign policy in a substantive way for half a decade. So your experience dwarfs mine in many ways. I'm hopefully a pretty quick study, but I feel like I still have a lot to learn. And that's one of the reasons why I enjoy your podcast. It's good to hear from practitioners who spend a lot of time in the field. Oh, thank you for saying. (laughs) We'll have you back again. Look, talking about the relationship between foreign affairs and media, I'm going to begin a bit self-indulgently here by quoting a passage from a book Michael Wesley and I wrote early in the century called Making Australian Foreign Policy. And I'm quoting, much of the power of the media comes from their capacity to select the material they report, choosing which messages to convey and from whom the media can determine who can communicate with a mass audience or from a mass audience to the government and on what issues. For journalist Ross Gittens, this makes the media unique types of messengers through a quality loosely defined as newsworthiness. They choose their messages, the extent to which they will allow the sender to make his or her case and the prominence the message will be given. Now, that's the traditional view of the journalist as gatekeeper. But rereading that recently, it just seemed to me that the media world has moved on a lot since the last edition of that book in 2007. So how has the landscape changed, Stephen, and what does it mean for your work? I mean, you're right, Alan, the, the landscape has changed, and, and I, I think it's actually changed pretty dramatically you know, the gatekeepers are dead, long live the gatekeepers, or even if we're not dead exactly, we're pretty diminished. And that's because there are countless new voices bubbling up through social media in particular. And it's, I think it's interesting, it's not just that social media provides a platform for new and alternative voices, which is healthy, but it also actually shapes mainstream media coverage as well. That's probably because journalists like me spend far too much time on sites like Twitter (laughs) following the threads that emerge and forgetting very quickly just how unrepresentative it can be. So social media has changed things dramatically. In some ways, it's really healthy. It's broken down barriers. It's provided an opportunity for new voices to come through. That's a good thing. But of course, social media also has plenty of perils. And the main peril, of course, is that it can be an echo chamber. And not only that, I think it can be centrifugal as well. It's a, that echo chamber quality drives polarization effectively because it rewards and, and elevates emotive or, or extreme statements. So in that environment where we're navigating this new field, where we have to share the space, if you like, with social media, I personally think it's more important than ever to privilege old-fashioned, if you like, journalistic qualities and values, including you know focusing on privileging evidence, straining where you can for objectivity. No, I don't believe the the word should be dead, buried and cremated and privileging evidence ahead of, of all else. Okay. Well, compared with what's going on in the US media at the moment, you know, that is a, a remarkably, from my point of view, refreshingly traditional view that you've just given of the role of the journalist. But I, I wanted to sort of press you a bit on your relationship with policymakers One of my particular gripes at the moment is that Australian ministers are reluctant to give speeches which give context to Australian foreign policy in a a way that a tweet or a a doorstop simply can't do. Uh, But when you do finally persuade them to give a speech, they drop copies to the media in advance so that the government's interpretation of what they've said will appear at the same time. And then because of the sort of relentless turning of the media cycle, by the time the speech is actually delivered and available to members of the public like Darren and me, it's already old news. That seems to be happening more often recently. Do you think that's right? And how do you deal with it? And how do you avoid being manipulated yourself? Well, Alan, you're talking there about a really time-honoured convention in uh, in political journalism, of course, which is the drop. I mean, how time-honoured is it? I mean, there was a time when important foreign policy speeches were made to Parliament, for example. That seems to have gone by the board now. 
honestly, Alan, it's difficult for me to, because of my age, really, and the limits of my experience, I've, I've been about 10 years effectively on and off in, in the gallery. So my view here is really only a decade old. It's true that now almost every major announcement is now essentially dropped to journalists in advance. Has it become more prevalent over the last 10 years? I, I don't think so. I mean, I don't think the tactics, at least to my eyes, have changed much over over the last decade or so. Was it different in the 80s or 90s? Possibly, quite quite probably. But it's difficult for me to say because, you know, I was in primary school at that stage or perhaps in high school in the uh, back half of, of the 90s. So it's difficult for me to make to make an accurate comparison. I mean, it's worth looking cynically at the drop. Why do politicians drop information? The reason's obvious. They want to get out ahead of the news cycle. They want to define the terms of the speech or, or, or the statement that they're giving. And then that presents a challenge to you as a journalist. How do you avoid being manipulated? And, and honestly, that's always a bit of a battle. If you get a drop at, say, 6 or 7 p.m. at night, then you'll have to rush to file by 9 or perhaps 10 p.m. at night at the latest before you go home, which means you only have got a couple of hours, really, to, to actually assess what's in front of you. What do you do in that situation? Well, I guess what you do is what you always do as a journalist. You try and adhere to the real basics of the craft. You try and work out what money is new money and what money is recycled or reannounced mm. money. You try and work out where the figures have come from. You try and compare what's being announced in the speech notes to what's been announced previously, and you try to question as many of the assumptions presented to you as possible. So in that sense, it's a, it's a pretty old-fashioned approach. The main thing I think that has changed is the speed of, of the news cycle. It's sped up immensely, even over the last decade that I've been in journalism. So now a minor government announcement will disappear in a blip. A speech or a significant announcement delivered by a minister will last a little longer, but the news cycle is still probably only, say, 8 to, to 12 hours. A big speech, a major announcement, like the one that Scott Morrison gave us with the Defence Strategic Update a few weeks ago, well, that can sustain, say, 36, 48 hours of coverage, but that's about it. So what you have to do in that circumstance is really try and find the time <laughs> that you need to give announcements the sustained coverage that they merit. And, and honestly, that is, that's a constant battle, and it's getting only harder. On a slightly different track, Stephen, do you deal much with the local embassies? I'm just wondering if it, dealing with the Chinese embassy, for example, is different to dealing with the Americans and the Indonesians or the Japanese. Yeah, it, it, it is. I mean, it probably won't shock you to know that it's uh, it's easier with some embassies than, than others. Yes, I've got a pretty good relationship with people in a number of embassies here, in particular the, some countries that are traditional friends and allies of Australia, the United States, Japan, and others, as well as with diplomats from countries that are very friendly to Australia, but with which we don't have any sort of formal alliance, you know, countries such as Singapore. But it is trickier with the Chinese embassy. I did have a brief professional relationship with someone from the Chinese embassy before I last went overseas. I've tried to pick that up again since I've returned back from overseas, Singapore most recently, but haven't had any luck. And anecdotally, others have also struggled to get much one-on-one -on -one engagement with the Chinese embassy. They just send out missives typically, you know, berating Australia and the Australian government. It's difficult. You know, the Americans and others are, of course, willing to talk off the record. They're willing to meet up. They're willing to exchange gossip, which is the basic, you know, <laughs> currency of diplomacy and journalism sometimes. Honestly, I believe that this really benefits the Americans, the Japanese, the others in, in Canberra. And I, I think it's to the Chinese embassy's disadvantage that they're engaged more in a more freewheeling way. But we are, of course, as you know, talking about very different political systems. So perhaps it's no surprise. Can I ask a follow-up question about DFAT? Dave Sharma, who's now a federal MP, but until recently was an Australian diplomat and indeed the ambassador in Israel, has called for greater resources for Australian diplomacy. Good thing, in my view. But at the same time, he criticised the department for its inability to sell its own story. I guess he was contrasting it with the sort of way the ADF does this. Now, I'm personally a bit uncomfortable with the idea that government agencies should be responsible for spruiking their own budgets, but I do know what Dave means. And so I just wanted to get your impression of how the department sells itself, because, you know, obviously the media is one of the ways in which you do that, both to the broad public, but also to ministers as well. 
Yeah, it's a difficult question to answer. I think DFAT has got better in when it comes to responding to, to journalists. Things have, I think, over the last year or two, probably become a little bit more liberal inside DFAT. I, I certainly feel like it's become slightly easier than perhaps it was before I when, went to work for the department to secure, you know, occasional briefings and the, and the like from people inside DFAT. And there does seem to be also an increased liberty, if you like, for senior DFAT officials to do things like, well, like this very podcast. Of course, you had no less than the secretary and others, but also diplomats coming on recently, which honestly, I look on with a bit of envy and you know, wish, wish I could get access to an hour's intensive interview with the secretary of DFAT. So I think things are liberalizing when it comes to the media. How much does DFAT push its message inside the government? I, I do know there is a inside the Morrison government that DFAT doesn't pursue its case internally, particularly energetically, and that they have a fairly traditional attitude about letting their work speak for itself rather than going around rattling the tin or boasting about their achievements. Honestly, it's difficult for me to make a an independent assessment on that, whether that's a fair claim or not. I just don't have enough visibility about exactly what happens between the offices in DFAT and Parliament House. But I can say that it is a fairly widespread view, at least within those sections of the government that concentrate on foreign affairs, that DFAT could be putting its case more energetically. How exactly is another question. Stephen, let's move into the real heart of this interview, which is to talk about the media industry more broadly. And I want to start big picture and, and, and ask you to generalize somewhat at the beginning, at least. Can you introduce us to how the Australian media you know, thinks and, and views foreign policy issues? You know, how much room is there for foreign policy content? And what does it mean for a story to be newsworthy? Look, it's, it's honestly difficult for me to speak for other media outlets because knowing exactly what their rationale and thinking is difficult to ascertain, even from relatively close quarters. I can say with a lot of confidence that the ABC is now investing much more time and energy in covering foreign policy. The fact that they've you know, essentially created this position for me is, uh, I think, testament to that. I think there was probably a feeling in the Australian media, or at least there was, you know, around 2007, 2008, when I first started my career, that foreign policy was something that was probably best left to professionals and, and the boffins, a sense that it was an abstract affair, best left to those who have a professional interest in it, either as diplomats or as academics or as foreign policy analysts. And that was probably because most Australians were, and I, I guess to a, to a great extent still are, pretty indifferent to foreign policy and pretty unaware or uninterested in our broader strategic circumstances. And I guess that's because our, our broader strategic circumstances were so settled and comfortable. That's changing now, of course. I'm not giving you breaking news here, but our, our strategic circumstances are obviously much less comfortable. Australians, as you've talked about recently in episodes, are now genuinely much more anxious about the world outside, much more cognizant of some of the risks involved, and I think are thinking quite a bit more deeply, at least uh, for many Australians, about foreign policy and the way that we navigate our way through this new world order. And it's certainly the case that people at the ABC, including my bosses, are also and have been turning their minds to this question in a much sharper way as well. So I think you will continue to see the ABC and I think other outlets as well, in particular uh, the Fairfax Papers, the Australian, uh, the Financial Review and others, uh, devoting ever more column inches to foreign policy and Australian foreign policy, simply because there's now much more perhaps at stake, or perhaps not much more at stake, but simply because it's become that much more fraught and people are now much more cognizant of what's at play. Thanks, Stephen. I'm going to ask a variation of the same question. And while you might not be able to speak to the intentions and the thinking of other outlets, I'm still interested in, in understanding variation in the media industry and how different organisations, whether that's the ABC, the Financial Review, the Daily Telegraph, the website Crikey, how they all cover news differently. And we can think about how they cover tax policy along a political spectrum. Politicians love to, to claim that one outlet is too left-leaning or there might be critique that another outlet is, is too populist or, or too conservative. But those distinctions don't really apply as much in foreign policy, largely because it's mostly a bipartisan affair, maybe climate change accepted. And so I'm wondering how you would describe how the ABC's coverage is different to those other actors in the landscape when it comes to foreign policy, or how you would describe variation in the industry on how foreign affairs questions are tackled. Look, the first difference, and I don't want to sound too parochial here, but 
I think the first thing to say is that the ABC does pour far more time, money, resources into covering what's happening overseas. Now, I appreciate this is different to foreign policy, strictly speaking, but I do think that that is an important and useful distinction. The ABC is still putting a lot of time and effort into bringing news from overseas back to Australians, and I think that's indispensable. Other outlets, of course, have cut back on their foreign bureaus. The ABC has to some extent as well, of course, but we still retain a you know a dedicated series of correspondents around the world. That's, I think, quite invaluable. When it comes to foreign policy, look, the main the main topic really remains China by a huge margin. That's you know the, the, the relationship between Australia and China, and most recently the poisonous relationship between Australia and China dominates foreign policy coverage in Australia. Are there huge gulfs in the way the different papers or outlets cover it? No, I, I don't think there are enormous gulfs. I think the major broadsheets in the ABC are broadly speaking on the same page. I think there's been some exceptional coverage of China and China-Australia relations from a number of papers across Fairfax, The Australian, The Finn, the ABC, all of which have you know broken pretty big stories about China and specifically about the activities of the Chinese Communist Party within Australia. I mean, The Finn is often seen as the most friendly paper to China or the most well-disposed because its readership obviously often has business interests in China and it does from time to time publish columns from perhaps more dovish figures excoriating the government for allowing the China policy to be hijacked by security hawks or the national security establishment. That's no bad thing. I think that's a great thing to have that diversity of debate. But The Finn's news coverage of the China-Australia relationship doesn't, I don't think, differ markedly to that you would find in, say, the Australian, uh, the Fairfax papers or the ABC. The tabloids, I think, you know, some tabloid papers, particularly the Daily Telegraph in Sydney, have pretty gleefully taken a big stick to China, because obviously it's a story which tends to draw eyeballs, draw clicks, it sells papers. And I generally don't, you know, have any sort of problem with that. I think tabloids are meant to be pretty punchy and irreverent. But I think we do have to be watchful in the industry more broadly, you know, does need to be careful that they don't veer into character assassination or, or guilt by association. And particularly when it comes to, to stories about the activities of Chinese Communist Party representatives or others in Australia, I think that's a, a line that we all have to walk very carefully. A sort of follow up from me, when I had my recent five minutes of tabloid fame, one of the things that struck me was how similar parts, at least of the news landscape, seem to be to the entertainment industry. Now, I'm sure that what I'm about to say isn't true of the ABC. Well, actually, I'm not really certain of that either, but I don't like to be impolite. But sometimes editors seem to act like showrunners in a long-running television series, like David Simon on The Wire or David Benioff and D.B. Weiss on Game of Thrones. In other words, their job is to ensure that whatever twists and turns the plot may take, it remains faithful to the overall narrative arc, which has already been determined, and that individual characters are always required to act consistently with their ascribed trays. Now, of course, that's unfair, and you will say it is unfair, but <laughs> in what ways is it unfair, and is it unfair everywhere? Well, Alan, I'm perhaps going to shock you slightly and say that I'm not sure it is always entirely unfair to make that allegation. I mean, I think we do always have to be pretty careful about that compelling pool of narrative, if you like. I think particularly as journalists and particularly right now, we do have to constantly question our own assumptions. Now, the problem for China, I think, at least when it comes to, to journalists or to me personally, is that its system is often quite opaque to us. Now, yes, there's a huge amount of good work out there, good academic work on things, for example, like the specific organs of the Chinese state, like the United Front Apparatus, how it works in places like Australia and the like. But China is huge. Its government is diverse and massive. And sometimes it's difficult for me anyway to get a firm handle, particularly as a relative newcomer, on exactly how power is distributed in China and within the Chinese government and the motivations specifically behind Chinese government actions. So it can really quickly become a bit of a, a Rorschach test. You know, you see what you expect. I'll give you one example of that. So when I first started covering the Pacific, there was a, a pretty rapacious appetite for, for stories about, you know, so-called Chinese debt trap diplomacy in the Pacific. Now, it's pretty easy to establish debt levels or to find out what the debt levels are in individual countries. 
but establishing a clear line of motive was was and is really difficult. Yes, China had built a whole lot of projects in the Pacific. Many of them were of questionable value or were white elephants. Yes, some Pacific nations, not all, but some had accumulated debt levels from the Chinese government or from the banks, the Chinese Xim Bank, that were worrying. And yes, that absolutely gave Beijing leverage with them. So you could very plausibly argue that there did seem to be evidence, if you looked you know, quite hard, of a sinister plot, if that's you know, what you wanted to see. And of course, that's also a, a very compelling headline. But you could also see when you looked you know, more closely, or, or if you looked closely at it, you could also see a, a messier story. You could see a story you know, where opportunistic Chinese contractors or companies and banks had moved in and where the main problem was really a nexus, a corrupt nexus between those organizations and, and local officials. Yeah. One, a story where the Chinese government was basically largely distracted or absent or unaware of what was going on rather than a nefarious puppet master, if you will. You could also find, if you look hard enough, evidence of some really good Chinese government aid projects, or at least some. So then, of course, everyone who, who wants to believe that Australia is just running a cynical scare campaign about Beijing points at this evidence and say, look, here's the evidence that, that you're all fantasists, that you're all paranoid, and that there's, there's nothing sinister happening here whatsoever. So navigating this environment, particularly when it comes to questions of motive and the Chinese government's motive, is honestly really, really tricky. And all that we can do as journalists is double down on, on trying as hard as we can to try and get to the truth and focus on what evidence and facts we can establish. I, I guess this is probably also a good time to talk about motives sort of in Australia as well, because what I personally found a bit dispiriting about some of the stories that have cropped up recently, uh, whether it's about, you know, your now legendary address to the Labour caucus, Alan, or the, the China Matters story, is that they did cast something of a sinister pall over pretty unremarkable events and implied that people were, were somehow compromised or bought off because they were advocating for a position that wasn't so confrontational with China. I, I think we've got to be very careful about this. It's not that people's motives are always clean. There are clearly people in Australia, there's evidence of this out there, of people who have been compromised. And I don't think we should avert our eyes from that, but we should also be very careful and certain before we make any allegations or imputations on that front. And we also have to be really careful, of course, about the language we use, particularly when it comes to Chinese nationals in Australia and Chinese Australians. You've got to be, I think, scrupulously careful because there is evidence, at least anecdotal evidence of rising racism in Australia. And I think we have to be very careful that we don't feed into that with our coverage. And I think the only way we can really do that is not by turning our eyes away from stories, but by being very, very specific about the language that we use. We should always talk about Chinese government interference, not Chinese interference. And we have to make sure that when we report on, for example, United Front activities, that we don't imply that anyone in Australia who might be sympathetic towards the CCP is somehow necessarily inevitably malign in their intentions. I, I think particularly in the climate we're in at the moment, that's, that's absolutely crucial. Thanks, Stephen. I was going to ask you about sort of how you thought about your civic responsibilities as a journalist and, and how we should evaluate the sort of the media as a fourth estate. And I think what you've just said then is, is a really good answer to that question. So I'll ask a sort of a narrower version of the question, which is about the relationship between media and government on questions of national security. And we touched on this a little bit earlier, but you have, I, I see sort of both antagonisms and synergies in their relationship. On the antagonism side, you have the publication of the Afghan files by your colleagues, Dan Oakes and Sam Clark, which of course saw the ABC's offices raided by law enforcement and the possibility of prosecution for publishing classified information. And the media has, of course, rightfully pushed back against this and raised concerns about free speech and transparency. But on, that, on the synergy side of the ledger, you have the situation where government sources leak national security information anonymously. And I assume this is always or almost always politicians and their officers rather than bureaucrats. And when this information is treated as newsworthy, it's a win-win relationship, you might say. You know, the government gets a story out, the journalist gets a scoop, but it does raise tricky ethical questions. You know, And I think back to events early last year in 2019, when the then head of ASIO, Duncan Lewis, former guest of the podcast, publicly repudiated a front page report about the nature of ASIO advice concerning the impact of medical evacuation legislation and the possibility of reopening the Christmas Island detention center. So sort of the small question here is, on what basis do you think about the grant of anonymity to contacts, especially if they're authorised by their bosses and maybe ministers to, to give you the information? And how does that relationship factor into your view of your civic responsibilities as a journalist? 
Thanks, Darren. I mean, it's a really good question. I, I don't obviously want to go into my specific sources or the, the agencies that they're from in any way, but if I can speak in the broad, if you like, or, or in the abstract, I think it's really important to, whenever you're speaking to anyone, perhaps particularly if you are speaking to someone who is not authorised typically to speak to you or who may have been um, <laughs> indirectly authorised by, uh, by a minister rather than through the, the usual process, I think it just it's incumbent upon us to apply all the usual rules even more stringently. In other words, you ask questions about motivations, you test the information where and when you can, and where possible, you demand attribution. Now, this is not always easy. It's really not easy. Attribution, let's start with that. You know, intelligence sources can be invaluable sources of information, but of course, they're almost never permitted to speak to the media. So they say they have to be off the record. And, you know, in this case, it's not like it's a backbencher who wants to spread a bit of gossip or, you know, badmouth a colleague, but would rather do so anonymously, you know, then you can quite comfortably come back and say, well, mate, if you don't want to put it on the record, then I'm not ascribing it to a a Labour MP or a a Liberal MP who, quote, told the ABC. There's I mean, there's a good reason typically, that they can't speak on the record. So all you can really do in that circumstance is make a decision about whether you are able to use what they've given you. And look, then it's a matter of trying to test the material. And again, that's really tricky because if you're being fed intelligence material, and I hasten to add, many people in the gallery, uh, I suspect, have had more experience, direct experience of this than I have, but nonetheless, If you are being fed intelligence material, particularly from a single source, then it can be very difficult to test it because the material, of course, is classified or it's something they're telling you, but they're unable to provide you with documents because those documents are highly classified. So if what they're giving you is particularly contentious, then, of course, you need to find someone else, ideally, to bounce it off to test whether it's accurate and useful. But I imagine that doing that is not easy because there are very small numbers of people who have access to this information and sharing or testing very sensitive information like this is not easy. So in the end, I think it has to come down to a judgment you make as a professional about how much trust you put in that source. And that is a very difficult and subjective decision to make. This is really just a very complicated way of me saying, Darren, that these are really, really fraught questions. And I know that my colleagues in the industry grapple with these all the time. Just a quick question that I wanted to squeeze in in somewhere about China. Obviously, the situation for Western reporters inside China is deteriorating by the day. What's the sense in the industry right now about how the coverage of China itself will need to change? You know, perhaps might we be seeing a return of the, sort of the discipline of peakingology where you one does their analysis based on documents and, and on speeches and on the internet because you can't do the work from inside China yourself? Look, this is, uh, yeah, it's, it's just a difficult one. It's not a question that the ABC has had to really grapple with directly because, of course, we've still got our correspondent in China, Bill Bertels, who does an excellent job. But of course, it has been really dispiriting to watch so many brilliant and and talented journalists from American papers in particular being forced to to leave China. I think the loss there is just immeasurable. It's uh, it's been terrible to watch. And I personally think that there's absolutely no substitute for being on the ground in China, talking to people, not just officials and others, but also just people on the ground who are witnesses to, to what's happening there. But you're right, it's getting harder and harder, and all the signs are that it will only get more and more difficult as the relationship between China and the US and other Western nations as well continues to deteriorate. So I've no doubt that the big American papers and others are now considering what they're going to do. I saw today that I think it was the New York Times moved its bureau out of Hong Kong to um, Seoul, Seoul, was it? It was Seoul, yeah, to Seoul. So that's obviously one thing, just to move to a neighbouring country. But of course, you still lose that immediate access to China. The other thing that I, I think that the papers will be doing, be trying to do everything they can to develop their brilliant Chinese national reporters who uh, who have worked in the papers as reporters or as news assistants and encourage them and enable them to do more original reporting on the ground. Now, I know that there are some academics who do work on China without ever setting foot there, partly in some cases because they feel like they can't do so safely. And I know that there are some people who do brilliant work 
whether that's sort of, you know, Kremlinology or Pekinology style, um, you know, observation, looking at subtle seating differences at Chinese Communist Party meetings or the choreography of those major meetings to see who's in and who's out, poring over documents that they get from inside China. All of that work is invaluable. But for journalists in particular who are preoccupied with the immediate, I honestly don't believe there's any substitute for being on the ground. And I think that the loss of top journalists on the ground in China will inevitably have an impact on on the quality and the breadth of coverage coming out of China. Unfortunately, I think that's almost an unavoidable reality. Stephen, moving away from China, if it was possible to listen in randomly to the private conversations of Australian policy advisors or intelligence analysts over the past 50 years, you'd very soon hear complaints about how hard it is to get ministers to focus on issues of long-term importance rather than the immediate crisis. The urgent is always driving out the importance in meetings of the NSC, for example. Now, I don't blame our political leaders for that, actually. It's a sort of an inevitable uh, consequence of the democratic political system. But how do you manage the same dilemma as a journalist? I mean, how do you turn something that you know to be important into news? And does social media make the problem worse or maybe even easier? Look, the answer to that question is basically, it's hard. It's really hard and it's getting harder. But that's probably my fault or it's probably our fault collectively because we've allowed ourselves to get distracted. The sheer clamour of events that we've got at the moment right now is deafening. It really is. I can't remember the last time that I had more than, say, a day without a new relatively urgent or very urgent story popping up, demanding immediate attention. Over the last couple of months in particular, it's just been relentless. Every day, it seems like there's a new breaking China story that demands urgent attention. And you're right, it leaves less time for thinking, it leaves less time for reading, crucially, and it leaves less time than you might like for for cultivating those contacts that not only give you access to news stories, but also deepen your understanding of what's happening. So it's it's becoming harder. And, and yes, social media does make it worse. And that's because it's such a relentless distraction. Now, that's my fault. That's not social media's fault. You know, it's just doing what it's meant to do, <laughs> drawing eyeballs, drawing clicks. But it is a distraction. And every time there's a new development, I've noticed this time and time again over the last couple of months, every time there's another twist in the tail with Australia's relationship with China, you know, you feel this irresistible urge to turn on Twitter, screenshot the statement, send it out into the ethosphere. And then you get, of course, that lovely little dopamine hit every time you think the retweets or the likes, you know, kicking up and you feel, oh, great, I'm doing my job. I'm informing people. People are informing me that I'm informing them. I'm doing my job. I'm not wasting my time. <laughs> I'm building my profile. But most importantly, <laughs> I'm giving people the news that they need, news that they need now. But that does mean that, look, that the immediate, you know, is, is uh, eclipses everything else. The truly important is eclipsed by the urgent. I think it is a real challenge for journalists. And quite simply, I think we all need to come up with better tactics for dealing with it. Or at least I know I need to come up with better tactics for dealing with it, whether that's turning off Twitter for a couple of hours or three hours every day, or whether it's setting aside time for for writing. But of course, doing that is difficult because you always have to be on call and you never want to turn down a phone call if someone's picking up the phone to you with the vital new information. So it's a difficult balancing act. It really is. And it's, it's getting harder. Stephen, I wanted to, in this last part of the interview, sort of link in your experience as a political reporter and talk about the domestic politics of foreign policy and international relations. But I want to do so briefly by putting on my international relations theorist's hat, because as our listeners will know that I believe one of the most powerful ways of understanding foreign policy is as a bottom-up phenomenon, where political or electoral logics guide the policy instincts of politicians. So every time I see the Australian government facing a major policy choice in the foreign policy realm, I ask myself, what's the domestic political angle here? You know, and that at least helps me, I think, understand the scope of what's possible or even maybe what the precise decision will be. But of course, reality is much more complicated than than my stylized theories. And in that context, I've been grappling to understand the phenomenon of the Wolverines. You know, as I understand it, both major parties are represented in this group, but that uh, given Wolverine's view of the world does not necessarily align with the rest of their party. You've done some work on this. Can you help us understand how it is the Wolverines exist and, and what are they trying to achieve? 
Look, I, I have done a little bit of work on the Wolverine, so I, I certainly wouldn't call myself an expert on them. I, I am in touch professionally with the with a couple of, of the members of, of the Wolverines and like I am with everyone in Parliament, really keen to hear their views on, on China and geopolitics. I suspect they'd be flattered to know that there's maybe we should call it like Kremlinology, Wolverineology study of the Wolverines <laughs> Parliament. Look, yes, I'm happy to provide what clarity I can. The Wolverines are basically a gathering or a coalition of MPs who are, broadly speaking, supportive of Australia's alliance with the United States and quite sceptical towards the Chinese Communist Party. I don't think their motivations are in any way sinister or, or really that secret or surprising. They simply want to shape government and opposition policies which adhere to the alliance as our security pillar and which are more muscular when it comes to pushing back against what they see as pretty relentless Chinese government interference in Australia, as well as what they see as a very hostile and threatening Chinese foreign policy in our region. Now, it's a bipartisan group. That's, as I understand it, one of the, the main sort of principles of, of, of the founding members. They wanted it to be bipartisan across the, the party aisle to draw as wide a support group as possible. I haven't looked into this closely recently, but last time I made an inquiry, I think I noticed that it probably skews more towards the coalition now than it does Labor, in that most of its newer members are coalition or, or conservative MPs rather than Labor ones. But there remain Labor members on it. What do they do? Well, they advocate and they coordinate their attempts to advocate for a policy, like I said, a bit more sceptical or perhaps much more sceptical towards China. And they do everything they can to coordinate those efforts to secure what results they can. So they're often quite active when it comes to talking to ministers on security policy, foreign policy, quite active when it came to Hong Kong and the recent announcement to offer extended visas to people in Hong Kong. It's worth noting they were probably pushing on a bit of an open door with that one. And they're also, yeah, not shy of a bit of publicity. As you know, they've got a logo, if you like, the <laughs> Times display that logo. And there is a, an attempt to, to try and bring in as many new members as possible. I think the expansion might have slowed recently, or at least it had last time I checked in, but it's certainly a substantial group of MPs and interestingly, largely a group of younger MPs as well. Stephen, if I could just follow up on that, other than your tantalizing point about publicity, what I heard then as an international relations theorist was a top-down phenomenon, that the position that Australia finds itself in the world is creating a constituency of politicians who have a particular view on foreign policy. And that contradicts the story I led with, which is all politics is local, all foreign policy has a bottom-up political logic. So I didn't hear a political logic. Does that mean that my theory is not especially helpful in understanding the Wolverines? Well, I mean, it's difficult to say because you're going to, I mean, each member would probably have really different motivations for joining. Yes, I mean, there may well be domestic political considerations that drive some members of the Wolverines or play into their, their calculus, as it does, I'm sure, into the government's overall China policy. I don't think that the government's China policy exists in some sort of perfect abstract foreign policy bubble. You know, of course, domestic considerations uh, play into that as well. But I do believe, at least when it comes to those members of the Wolverines that I've spoken to, that when it comes to questions around, in particular, China and the United States, that many members of the, the Wolverines do see it very much in stark moral terms. That, that doesn't mean they define it entirely in moral terms, but they do see a very strong moral element to it. And they think there is a moral imperative to throw our weight behind the United States alliance and to do everything possible to ensure that Chinese expansionism, as they see it, or Chinese government expansionism, as they see it, is limited both in our region and in Australia. Uh, we all bring to our work the experiences that have shaped us, and I've been around for a long time, and being around for a long time gives you advantages and disadvantages. The advantage is that you can get historical perspective and some sense of the connection between things, and the disadvantage is that the models in your own mind can solidify and make it harder to recognise fundamental change when it comes. When you look at the Australian foreign policy debate, Stephen, do you see such a demographic divide? It's sometimes said to be one of the things that distinguishes the Wolverines, and my views on that self-description are well known, from the more establishment types on the question of China. 
In other words, they believe that they can penetrate the fog of nostalgia that clouds the views of others. Now, as Darren and I noted last time we spoke, that belief in what younger people think about China is not actually quite borne out by the latest Lowy poll. But do you see this demographic divide as a wider issue that manifests itself beyond China? I mean, you were talking about the values side of it. There is that one of the elements, as opposed to the sort of real politique of an older generation. I, I don't have a really clear answer on this one, but I, I do think there's probably anecdotal evidence, at the very least, that many younger MPs and and younger MPs on both sides of politics are perhaps more sceptical towards China than their counterparts in, say, their 50s and 60s. Now, this is a really broad generalisation. I hasten to add, I, I'm not saying this is universal, but there is certainly a cohort, if you like, of younger China hawks who do believe, I think, that some, not all, that, that some long-time China watchers or China specialists have been unable to grasp fundamentally the way that China has changed as they see it. It's transformation from a state which some hoped would slowly edge towards some sort of normality, not liberalise, but edge towards an acceptance of international organisations into one that is in many ways hostile to the international order or hostile to international norms. Now, I think they suspect, fairly or not, that the older generation perhaps still yearns for that era when they were perhaps younger or in the driving seat and when there was this sense of possibility about China, a sense of it opening up, of it engaging with the West, in particular around the, the mid to late 90s and the very early 2000s. And yes, I do think, you've put it quite well, Alan, I do think they that they see this debate in pretty starkly moral terms, and they do believe that some China specialists, people who are steeped in years of China watching, are unable to see the profundity of this transformation, if you like. And they also believe that some of these people are perhaps willfully blind to the extent to which China does seem intent on both exporting, to, at least to some extent, its model of governance, and is intent on suppressing civil society and freedom of speech when it comes to its so-called core interests around the globe. Now, mm -hmm. I'm not endorsing that view necessarily. I'm not saying that's right, but I do believe that it's pretty widely held amongst this younger cohort. So is there a generational divide? No, not really, not in a true sense, but I do think there are perhaps elements of a generational divide in elements of the, the China debate, and that is washing through parliament day by day. Thanks, Stephen. Just a last question or two, and, and maybe I'll ask you to take off your media hat here and, and put on a grand strategist hat or a pundit's hat like Alan and I uh, like to do on this podcast. You said that you'd spent some time in Singapore and their government is often lauded, at least in sort of pundit circles, for its foreign policy discipline. You know, all public statements are carefully calculated and calibrated. And you contrast that with the willingness here of parliamentary backbenchers, as we've discussed, to say whatever they want for whatever reason they want, which has an impact, as you said, of potentially complicating or directing a government's message or an opposition policy platform. Now, of course, we here in Australia are a freer and more open society, and that's undoubtedly good. But you know, I do wonder sometimes whether this cacophony of voices in Australia and this robust debate also has a downside, that it weakens Australian foreign policy in some way. Do you agree with that? Or do you think there's any kind of mitigation strategy that is needed? Or is this just a consequence of the system we have? Look, I'm going to give a pretty unimaginative answer here, Darren. I, I think it is just an inevitable consequence of the system that we have. And I think we tinker with that at our peril. Look, a number of people, particularly in, in Labor, have said that the cacophony of voices, as you put it, uh, particularly from the coalition side, has been unhelpful, that it's muddied the waters, that it's unnecessarily further inflamed ties with Beijing, and that it's diminished the authority of the foreign minister. That's a reasonable criticism to make. But drawing any sort of systemic conclusions from that would sort of strike me as a mistake. If Maurice Payne does indeed need to pull in the Wolverines, then she should do so. <laughs> Good luck, perhaps, but she should uh, she should try. But I don't think it says anything profound or, or enduring about our system. I do, and I guess it's unsurprising as a journalist, I do firmly believe that the more voices speaking out typically the better, that healthy debate, you know, within, of course, reasonable bounds, is almost always a good thing, and that the, the more voices, the better. 
And I don't think I just believe that because, you know, I'm, I'm hungry for copy, hungry for controversy. I, I, I firmly do believe that these things are better hashed out in open than behind closed doors. So do I see anything I would like to fundamentally change about our system? Yeah, sure. Absolutely. I'd like to see more deliberation, perhaps, in some of the ways we do things. I think we do have some things to learn in terms of governance from Singapore. Absolutely. It's got, a, it's got some very admirable traits. But do I think that there's anything, you know, when it comes to our fundamental protections for free speech, for the ideals of debate, for the ideals of the exchange of ideas? No, no, I don't. I think, you know, cliche as it is, sunlight is a good disinfectant and the more voices, the merrier. One last question then for Stephen, the grand strategist. <laughs> yeah, we're in a, an era of major power rivalry now, that's clear, and growing threats to Australia's national security. So how does that top-down phenomenon, how does this new era of geopolitics, does it shift the media calculus at all and what's in the public interest? Does the public interest sort of collapse into a, a broader national interest in this kind of environment? Or is it even more important that the two remain separate? Look, in my personal view, I think it's vital that they remain completely separate. I mean, you can always mount an argument for the national interest, and particularly as a public broadcaster, and journalists at the ABC will always hear that argument out. And we're not about to, to slam the door shut. If people say you have something that could be damaging to national security, fundamentally damaging to national security, if you publish it, we're not going to simply ignore that. It's happened before. We will enter into discussions, as has happened before, with the government uh, negotiations, if you will, about what is and is not potentially damaging. But I don't believe the fact that we're in an era of intensified geostrategic competition justifies collapsing the two. I think, in fact, it's more important than ever that we maintain the principles that have long underlined the ABC's approach to journalism. And amongst them, of course, independence from the government, scrupulously impartial reporting, freedom of inquiry, of speech, objectivity, and trying, striving all the time to get to the truth of a story and then broadcast it to as wide an audience as possible. I know this is a very old-fashioned and unimaginative sort of take on, on the national broadcaster, but I firmly believe that they're the principles we have to adhere to. Stephen Jadgetz, this was a fabulous conversation. Thank you for taking time out of a very busy day up at Parliament House to have a chat with us. No worries. Thank you both. It's been a, a real pleasure to join you. And that's all for today's episode of Australia in the World. As always, we want to thank AIIA intern Mitchell McIntosh for his help with research and audio editing and Rory Stenning for composing our theme music. Thank you and talk to you again soon. Music